Oh, look at that. It's time to start the show. How are you guys this morning? <laughs> I'm sitting here laughing at a clip of the president. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson. The full number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I got to play you this clip. It, it is... <laughs> <laughs> this is the president's best. This is from, from the White House press briefing yesterday. As it is. I have a question for you. So we have a lot of very angry media all around this room, and they want one of these seats. But because of social distancing, we are keeping them empty. And they are keeping them empty. Will there ever be a time when all of those really angry, angry people who don't like me much to start off with, but now they really don't like me. Will there ever be a time <laughs> when these seats are full, like full to the brim like it used to be, where people are almost sitting on each other's lap? And this whole row over here is packed, and now they're outside wanting to get in, and they're very jealous of all of these reporters. Will we ever have that again, or is that something that will be, you know, it'll look like this forever? So we're learning a lot about social distancing and respiratory diseases. And I think those are the discussions we have to have in the future. It was what you were talking about, changing our whole behavior patterns of what we touch and being conscious of that. I remember when I was worried Saturday morning, I was trying to think, what all did I touch on Friday? Did I touch a doorknob? Did I do this? Did I do that? <laughs> she doesn't want to answer. <laughs> Oh my goodness gracious. Uh, yep. That's right. Folks. It, 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 you just got to laugh at some of the stuff. I mean, you, you really, really, really do need to laugh at some of the stuff. It is, it is funny to watch, uh, the people in the media lose their, their minds over this stuff. And by the way, uh, so, you know, I do a more, I do this show and then in the evenings I do a different show. And yesterday, let me, let me give you a sense of this. I was on the air six hours yesterday, did this show nine to noon, and then did my own show uh, in Atlanta, four to seven, the, the Atlanta's evening news. <laughs> the show starts at four. It's the governor's press conference, which lasts until about 5.20. We go to a commercial break. We come back. I have Three minutes uh, with a phone caller who's very angry with the governor of Georgia. We go go to break. We come back. We've got about three minutes. And then the presidential press conference starts. That should have started at 5. They put it until 5.30. It started at about 5.43-ish. And it went until almost 7 o'clock. I, I, yesterday in the evening on, in my second show, I spoke for maybe 10 total minutes in a three-hour program, which was great because I spent so much time yesterday. Uh, talking in the morning. It's just, man, uh, the coronavirus world. And, and I've got to say, there, I've got a growing group of friends of mine who are deeply frustrated about the sheltering in place, what it's doing with the economy and the damaging effects. And I, and I want to actually start there this morning. I got a lot of audio. I've also got a couple interviews today. I've, I've got um, Chris Burns from Dynamic Money is going to come by at the top of the next hour and talk uh, a little bit about what's going on in the markets. I, I may throw some wild cards at him as well, surprise him. At the bottom of the next hour, Mike Davis is going to come by. He's with the Article 3 Project, uh, which has been advocating for conservative judges, among other things, uh, and also helping some of the, the, the presidential um, issues that are out there, the presidential appointments. I want to talk to him about it. Uh, he's He's got some angles on COVID-19 as well. There are there is a growing sense from people that on the right that the projections have always been overblown. But get this, uh, Chris Hayes from MSNBC 
last night suggested that maybe the modeling was always overinflated to make the president look good. Maybe that's what it is. I've got this sneaking suspicion that by the time we get to June, all of the conservatives who say the modeling is overblown will be saying, no, no, the modeling's always been right. And look at President Trump's leadership. And it'll be the progressives who, who have been telling us we're not doing enough, who have been attacking Brian Kemp for not doing enough, among others, who will say, no, you know what? Actually, uh, this is good. The, 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 or they'll say this is bad. The models lied the whole time. And it was a PR stunt to help the president. You're, you're going to have the complete roles reversed. Conservatives right now believe it's a grand government conspiracy to empower themselves and keep everybody home. And the models are all wrong. Liberals believe that you got to follow the models. The models are always right. Uh, you never have any skepticism. Don't you dare, don't you dare question any of it. And by the summer, it's going to be reversed. I just, I expect that to happen. But here's what's going on right now. And, and I want to start from this. And, and I'm mindful of, of, of a couple of things too. Today is Holy Thursday. And I want to make note of that out of the gate today. Uh, they call it Maundy Thursday. The reason they call it Maundy Thursday, it comes from the Latin for mandatum uh, or the Latin mandatum. The word mandatum means commandment. And, and it comes from the Thursday before the crucifixion uh, today, 1,987 years ago or so. Uh, Jesus said he was giving the new commandment uh, to love one another as you love yourself. Uh, kind of a big deal. And so it was called Monday Thursday. And I want to start foundationally with this as part of the conversation today. There are two sides of the same coin at play right now. There are those who want everyone to stay home to save lives. And there are those who want everyone to go back to work to save lives. And some of you are looking at the situation right now saying, how can everybody get back out of their house now? How is that going to save life? Well, all you got to do is go down to South Georgia, go down to Bainbridge, go down to Bainbridge, Georgia, and talk to the people who live down there about the increase in suicides after Hurricane Michael came through and wiped out farms and businesses. And government relief never came. Government relief kept being promised. Farms collapsed. People went bankrupt. Suicide spiked. And there is a real concern from a, a segment of the public, mostly on the right, that if we can't get people to go back to work, then we're going to see a devastating long-term economic fallout that will ultimately cause as many deaths, if not more, than what this virus thus far has caused. And it is a very fair point, and you should not dismiss it. On the other side of the coin are the people who want everyone to shelter in place right now. And they want everyone to shelter in place right now because if you don't shelter in place, the virus will spread. One person infects up to three people. We now know, and, and again, this is where people are misrepresenting the governor of Georgia. We now know, we did not know until last week, there are people who will never get symptoms of the virus who are contagious. They'll never even know they had the virus and they're infecting people. So it becomes even harder to model the spread. So you leave your house right now. We don't have the testing capabilities. And people are going to get the virus. Hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. 
And in overwhelming the hospitals, it's not just the COVID-19 patients who are going to die. It is the people who have the heart attacks and the strokes and cancer and, and car wrecks and gunshots and everything else who could otherwise be saved, but there won't even be a hospital bed for them. If you want a sense of the fallout of what's happening right now, consider, let, let's, we've talked about Albany. We've talked about New York. Consider this. This is Floyd County, uh, WRGA, uh, the radio station up there, WRGANews.com. This is, this is the story on their website this morning. Floyd Medical Center is preparing for the worst while hoping for the best. The hospital is adding more hospital beds as models show we could see a surge of COVID-19 patients in late April or early May. Floyd has utilized the second and third floors at the former Kindred Hospital, and they are adding a 20-bed ICU hospital in the front parking lot. In the front parking lot, a 20-bed ICU hospital in the front parking lot. Now, work is underway to convert the first floor of the Floyd parking deck near the main entrance, according to David Early, Vice President of Support Services and Operations at Floyd. We believe by April 18 or 20, we're going to have this somewhat operational to service up to 200 patients. Both the 20-bed hospital and the 200-bed area, we hope that we never have have to use them certainly we're going to serve the community when's the last time anyone built a field hospital in rome for potential flu patients when's the last time you've seen a hospital so maxed out by the flu that it maxed out not just the hospital but the adjacent outpatient centers, the ancillary outpatient centers, and they had to start building field hospitals in the park. You see, uh, it, it is a very legitimate concern right now globally. There have been about a million cases and 5% have died in this country. We've got uh, 3% of deaths in this country. We believe it's actually more people have it than not, so it's probably a 1% fatality rate, actually. But right now, among those cases that are confirmed cases, there's 3%. And by the way, there's actually a lot of evidence in New York City that they've undercounted it. Why do I say that? Because the amount of people dying at home of heart attacks is up 400%. Do you know the number one cause of death from COVID-19? It's a heart attack. Why? Because COVID-19 fills your air sacs and your lungs up with pus, your blood oxygen level drops, and it causes a heart attack and you die. So it is a very legitimate concern that people want to, need to, should go back to work as soon as possible. And if businesses collapse uh, and economic ruin befalls people, a lot of people are going to commit suicide, maybe more than the total number of people who are dead right now uh, from COVID-19. It wouldn't surprise me. When people lose all hope in a society that is increasingly unchurched, uh, there, there's no hope in Jesus because they don't believe in Jesus, uh, they're going to commit suicide. But it is also a situation where you have not had all these field hospitals being set up uh, for the flu. There is clearly something different about this virus. When the entire world is in a lockdown, the entire world is. And by the way, a lot of conservatives have been focusing on Sweden, Sweden doing things differently. Sweden is going into lockdown now. The virus has begun running rampant in Sweden, and they're beginning to shut the country down. So clearly something is different with this virus, and that's why people are responding to it. But all sides are premised from love of fellow man. 
Also, at the same time, Jesus commanded us, uh, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. He did this on Holy Thursday, which is today, which is the reason I bring it up. And there are a whole lot of people who are hating each other right now, hating each other. And everybody is imputing the worst motives to one another right now. And both sides actually care about their fellow man, and they, they, they look at different aspects of it, and we should be careful in how we approach and consider the other sides. We are none of us without any blame in how we've handled this, but I've got to tell you, I, I'm, I, I look at what Governor Kemp did, and I want to spend some time on what Governor Kemp did today. And the reaction to him on left and right, he's in a very no-win situation. And if you put people in your prayers, you're supposed to pray for your leaders. Anyway, I would certainly pray for, for Brian Kemp right now. He's got a lot of conservatives who are deeply angry at him that he has extended the shelter-in-place order to the end of the month, uh, keeping us in line with the federal government. And there are a number of conservatives who are deeply angry with him. Now, you should know that up in North Georgia, particularly up in, in Northeast Georgia, a lot of the county commissioners up there are livid that a lot of people are coming up there in their written cabins and they want to shelter in place in the cabins and they fear they're bringing the virus with them. The hospitals up there are being taxed, uh, starting to be a little overwhelmed. They're getting a little frazzled up there. And that's one reason the governor has banned short-term rentals. Now, here's here's the deal. This is the news. If you have a pre-existing short-term rental contract, those people get to come, but you can't effective immediately. You can't enter new short-term contracts. Your, your Airbnb has to close unless you've got tenants already coming. They can come, but through the end of the month, otherwise, no. You know, one thing, the governor's been smeared, uh, particularly by the mayor of Tybee Island, for keeping beaches open. And there have been videos circulating of the crowds on the beaches in Georgia. It turns out, the governor says, uh, those those crowds are pictures from the 4th of July last year and from Labor Day. Uh, they're not actually videos of current things happening. A lot of people circulating those to smear the governor, and they're not current videos. In fact, the governor says they actually are patrolling the beaches. They are prohibiting people from breaking out the lawn chairs and the recliners. Uh, they're letting people walk on the beach, but you can't hang out on the beach. You can't bring your cooler full of beer, and you can't have a crowd mingle. Contrary to what so many people are saying, that the willful lies in that aspect of it. Truth kind of matters more now than it more than it has mattered in the past. Uh, truth, truth really does matter, and it's so hard to find truthful information. And now that we actually see the 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 rate the modeling rates come down, the models are falling dramatically from a hundred thousand now to down to forty thousand. They're still within the margin. They're still within the range. The range has always been between about forty thousand deaths to two hundred thousand deaths, which is a huge range. But it's an epidemiological model. It's supposed to be a guide. It's no different from the business projection you use. It's not going to be accurate. It's supposed to give you a guide on how to conduct yourself. They've been doing them for 100 years. In the last 10 years, they've computerized them, got them even better, and they're not accurate. They've never been meant to be accurate, but they are meant to be educated guesses and guides from the experts. Unlike the global warming models, they actually change on a daily basis as real-time information comes in. And a lot of conservatives have been willfully trying to undermine those, uh, and they've been undermining them because they want to get to an outcome. They want everybody to go back to work tomorrow, and it, it's an understandable concern. But what's happening is you got a lot of people who are saying, let's go back to work tomorrow. Now, let's work backwards and twist everything to show that everything was wrong uh, so that we can undermine all the claims so that we can go back to work tomorrow.
And that's just as wrong as what we're going to see on the left this summer. They're going to start saying the models were wrong, and they're going to claim a government conspiracy uh, designed to prop up the president of the United States. There's another conspiracy now floating. ABC and CNN are both running news stories claiming that the American intelligence apparatus had word of COVID-19 spreading in November of last year and that the president had advance notice and failed to take action. There's been a rare rebuke from the intelligence agencies this morning. And it's very rare for them to come out and flatly say a news report is wrong, but that's what they're saying this morning, that the news reports are wrong and that this never happened. And by the way, um, a lot of the, the medical journals that have traced this have said it would have been impossible for it to happen uh, before the end of November because the first case wasn't reported until January or December based on what they know. And yet now the media is beginning to peddle their own set of falsehoods just because they're afraid this might actually help the president. The president's leadership might actually get him reelected. That neither side right now wants, wants to, to just embrace truth. They want to fight with it. And what we're going to see is this great crossing point where we'll have a, a, a dot of truth in the middle as both sides cross uh, to own each other's untruth to try to peddle their agenda. And that, unfortunately, I think we're probably going to see by June as people will continue to yell at each other and ignore this commandment uh, here on Holy Thursday to love one another. Welcome back. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, is... 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, very happy to take your calls on this. Very happy to to get your thoughts on what's going on. I, I will tell you this. There is some news out this morning that Patrick McHenry from the House, he is working with Elizabeth Warren. He's a Republican from North Carolina, working with Elizabeth Warren on a very, very simple piece of legislation. Uh, and it is one that should get bipartisan support, and it would do just one thing. It would get rid of the caps in the payroll protection program. Uh, the government set aside $350 billion to help small businesses, businesses under 500 people meet their payroll. Uh, what Patrick McHenry and Elizabeth Warren want to do is get rid of the cap, uh, and any small business, any business under 500 people who wants to take advantage of the pay, payroll protection program would be able to do so under the existing terms, and it would convert to a grant uh, by the the middle of summer if they not only they, they got to do uh, those employers who want to do it, do two things. One, don't lay people off, and if you can, hire people back. Hire the people back. The government will pay you to rehire the people you laid off so long as you put them back on uh, payroll, that they'll they'll cover the cost. So uh, not, a, not a bad plan. It, it is, it's going to have wide bipartisan support. It's what the president himself has suggested he would like to do is to get everything moving again, is to do that. Uh, keep everybody going, keep everybody engaged, and keep people on payroll and not have them work or at least find ways they can work from home. If, if they can't go though, keep their payroll going and essentially you're giving them vacation time to stay home and do nothing. Uh, it is the shelter in place thing that they think will work. And by the way, uh, in defense of the people who are doing the modeling, this is what they say, is that because the modeling always contemplated social distancing, but did not contemplate sheltering in place. And the models have shifted so dramatically because of all the data 
of people actually staying home and, and governors doing it. It also does turn out that, that, you know, so many partisan progressives were saying, oh, the South is going to be overrun with dead people. It turns out that the infection rate is not spreading in the South like it was projected to, which suggests maybe warm weather will help. Maybe there's some conflicting data there we'll get into when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. To the phones, we go to Kennesaw, Georgia, and Andrew. Andrew, well, let's see. There we go. Andrew, how are you? Great, yourself? Great. I'll get right to it. Um, my question is... Um, when, if you were a betting man, when do you think that this economy is going to start opening up? Maybe May 1st? And if it does, um, do you think that this economy, as Trump has said, will actually recover, and um, especially before the election? And if I may just add a couple other things I was thinking before. of while I was on hold. Um, could this actually be used to Trump's advantage based on his management style? And also, how in the world is Joe Biden, who nobody's hearing from and seems to not be able to be coherent, leading in some of these polls? Are these people just, you know, never underestimate the stupidity of the American people type situation? What the heck is going on there? Uh, So a couple of things on on Joe. uh, There are a lot of people who just don't like this president and uh, they're not going to get the socialist. And so they'll hold their nose and vote for Joe, thinking that at least he'll surround himself with competent people. That's kind of been one of the overarching narratives of the media to undermine this president is it's not just him, but everyone around him is incompetent. And a lot of people have believed that. But if you actually look at the polling, uh, it's not too different from where Hillary and, and, and Trump are were, and he still won. So he can be a couple of points behind and still win this thing in the Electoral College. we got to look at the state-by-state poll instead of the national poll. And then if you look at Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, he's doing okay there, uh, and Iowa as well. So he could still win. Now, on the other issue, I suspect that if we can get the economy going again, uh, say around May 1st, that we can start ramping things up so that people see optimistic signs headed into the election. I think if we stay shut down into June, as some people say we have to, I think we're going to start seeing all sorts of uh, calamitous effects. One of the other concerns that I have, I'm actually was during the break texting with a good friend of mine who's a financier on Wall Street who's very aggravated. He feels like a lot of companies that deserve to be put out of business are going to be propped up by the federal government and given loan guarantees and, and grants that they don't deserve because they've made a bunch of bad deals. Uh, they were they were only surviving because of the economic good times and the bad times should have put them out of business and now they're going to they're gonna drag on and that's going to cause more long-term economic instability and also ultimately still cause collapse, which will keep us in a recession a little bit longer. And I, I, I've got that concern myself. I think it's very possible we see something like that happen. Uh, but I, I do genuinely believe, perhaps naively, that if we can get ourselves back to work uh, within by the end of this month, that things will go back to normal much more quickly. The question, though, again, is just how, how can we do it? Uh, and if we do do it, uh, what will the viral spread be? Can we contain it enough? And it, it, this gets to where I wanted to go. And, and so I'm, I'm glad you called in. 
let let me talk about political campaigns for just a minute, if you will. Uh, and this is not a political campaign, but there are some similarities to it. I I I know political campaigns. It's what I used to do. Your your date certain is always the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And from there, you work your way backwards. To win on election day, here are the things I must do. I must build a campaign organization. I must fundraise. I must do television. I must do radio. I must do mail. I must do campaign events. I must organize counties. I must find county heads. I must find precinct captains in each precinct in that county. I've got to go through the, the list. I've got to find per precinct, per county, the names of people who will vote for me. And I need this many. And I've got to do modeling to show me what to do. Everything is built on modeling of how many votes you need and how are you going to get them. And you work backwards to build your plan. So today is April 9th. Happy birthday to my sister, by the way. And so you're April 9th. Okay, I need to raise X amount of money by May 9th. I need to have this many precinct captains and I need to have this many counties organized and I need to have this many people who are locked in to vote for me. By June 9th, these things need to happen. Between May 9th and June 9th, here are the things I'm going to do to make that goal. By June 9th and July 9th, I need these things to happen. Here's what I'm going to do between June 9th and July 9th to make sure it happens. We're into August. I need to start shooting my videos. I need to start shooting my videos now because it's easier for people because uh, school's about to start. People are going to get focused. I need to have my ads up by the day after Labor Day when people start paying attention. So I got to do this now. So that means I'm going to have to have this much money. I need to work backwards now from that date to the amount of money that I need. I need to raise uh, $20,000 thousand dollars a month for the race that I'm running in and these are the 10 people I know that can help me get the seed money and then they can ask other people to do a fundraiser for me we're going to do a fundraiser on this day and this day and this day each one should expect to raise me this amount of money I'm going to dial for dollars every day at 3 p.m. I'm going to have a list of people that I'm going to call every single day they're going to give me the names of people that I can call they're also going to give me money here's what I think they can do my staff has prepared what I should ask for them I'm always going to ask slightly more they'll give me slightly less this is the estimate that I think they're going to give me so this is the estimate of the budget that I'm going to have to pay the staff to be able to build the models to be able to do the door-to-door to be able to do the ad campaign to run the ads to run the mail to run the radio to run the tv to get me to the election and by election day i'm going to know in every single county exactly how many people have promised to vote for me and i'm going to get more than i need and i'm going to win the election that's how you do a campaign it's not hard there's a lot of sweat equity but it's not that hard i mean you you know when you go into a precinct You know how many people live in the precinct and how many people are likely to vote in the precinct, how many people are going to be Republican, and how many of those people do I need to vote for me? You can figure it all out. And so then you do a model precinct by precinct of every precinct in every county of every part of the area you're running in, and you you decide, okay, there are 5,000 Republicans or there are 5,000 voters. There are 3,000 of them are Republican, and I'm going to go find those 3,000. And if I get all of them who are likely to vote, I'm going to win. And you go door to door, you knock, you do all that stuff. We need that for this. May 1st, we're going to reopen the country. Today is April 9th. What do we need to do between April 9th and May 1st to make sure we can open the country? Well, we need to ramp up testing capacity. 
We need to go zip code by zip code and find areas of the country that can be reopened. We need to recognize that there are parts of the country we're not going to be able to reopen, but we are going to reopen the areas that we can. And what are the areas that we can open? There are no viral, no viruses detected or there is no viral spread. We're going to make sure that people who are sick do not come to work. We're going to make it easy and we're going to require employers to test everyone and allow people to come to work who have the antibody test and and show that they're not going to get sick. They're going to be able to come to work. The others aren't. We're going to require that employers those people to incentivize them to stay home, stay in their house. We're going to quarantine them. They'll be able to come back to work two weeks later. They'll have to take two tests to make sure they're negative. In the meantime, as people go about their business, we're going to make everybody wear masks. Well, to make everybody wear masks, when they come out of their house on on May 1st, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to mail from the government masks for everyone to wear. So we're going to need to have supplies. We're going to have to ramp up our supplies today to be able to do it by April 20th to get them in the mail to make sure people have them. Then we're going to have to make sure that every grocery store in America starts selling them. So we're going to have to stock the grocery stores. And in stocking the grocery stores, we're going to have to make sure that they sell them at a reasonable rate so everyone who wants them can buy them. We're going to have to go to Amazon and make sure they're available on Amazon so people can get them shipped to them because we're not going to allow anyone out of the house on May 1st if they're not wearing a mask. Congress is going to have to pass a law to make sure that happens. Uh, the state governments are going to have to comply and in uh, deuce regulation. We're going to be able to do that between April 9th and May 1st. Here's every single thing we have to do, and we're going to work day and night between April 9th and May 1st to be able to get everybody out of the house. And that may mean everybody's got to be tested before they can leave their house or tested before they can go back to work. There's got to be regular temperature monitoring in uh, in offices. People are going to have to have a mask. We're going to have to ramp up the hand sanitizer capacity and supply to be able to get people hand sanitizer in their offices. We're going to have to encourage better hygiene. We're going to have to keep people home from school still for a few more months because if it gets into schools, it's going to be bad. We're going to have to keep nursing homes on lockdown for a little while longer. But there are ways to do this to get the economy going. Now, the question is, can we do it? And if I were the president, what I would want to do is I would want to come out and say, May 1st is our goal. Here is every single thing that must happen before we can open for business on May 1st. And I would give a weekly update. Well, okay, we've fallen behind on this. We think we can get this back up to speed to keep May 1st. Or this has fallen behind. May 1st is not going to be practical, but we think May 5th now can be practical. We're going to ramp up capacity. We need to redirect supplies over here to make May 5th happen since we can't do May 1st. Well, we've had a setback over here, so now it's got to be May 10th. Well, uh, hey, we've had a surprise. We didn't realize we could do this. Now we're able to roll this back, and it's going to be May 3rd now. We're ahead of the game now. And bring us the regular updates. Bring us the plan. Bring us the hope. But it's doable. It's doable. You've got to provide the plan, though. You've got to say, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Uh Uh-oh, X has slowed down, down, so we can't do May 1st. Uh, X has now picked up. We can do May 1st. Uh, Y is slowing down. We need to redirect resources to Y. Well, because we're redirecting resources to Y, we've got to slow down on X, and so that's going to put us to May 5th. Well, now we've redirected the resources. A private company has stepped in and been able to do. We didn't think what they could do, so now we can move back to May 1st. But give the people the hope and explain to people why. Because as long as you keep everybody informed, there's not a magic box of models. It's an actual concrete campaign plan to get the country open on May 1st. And if you do that, you're going to make people understand this isn't a magic box of modeling. There's actually some concrete science and economics and governmental planning and regulation and private partnership, private public partnership involved 
to be able to make it happen. You do it, you're golden. And when you can't do it because something happens, the public's going to understand. And if you do it, you can make it more bipartisan. And frankly, you can make it more leaderly. And you can buy in a bipartisan plan to make it happen. And you can shove everything aside. And you can say when the Democrats come and say, hey, we got to bail out everybody's student loan along the way. You say, that's not important right now. What's important is getting people back to work. And when they say, but we've, we've got to help the people who are behind already, say, that's not important right now. We've got to get people back to work. Because work gives people meaning. There are ways to do that. There are ways to do that. But I don't know yet that they can. And that's part of the problem here. We don't know yet that they can. If you're just tuning in here, Rome, Georgia is converting a parking deck into an ICU field hospital. They don't know yet that they'll need it. But when's the last time the flu caused that? That's got to that's gotta be meaningful in some way. Forget the modeling. Look at the real world. You can say the modeling is wrong. Look at the real, real world. When's the last time they set up a field hospital in New York City in Central Park? When's the last time the entire world went to shelter in place? When's the last time the entire world said, if we don't do this, bad things are going to happen? You can say global warming. That's that's fair. But even with global warming, take the Paris Accord. It was a feel-good thing without any teeth. Here, if you're seen outside in France right now, you're going to jail. They've shut the entire country down. When's the last time that happened? War? World War? There's clearly something different. You don't have to believe the models. Believe your eyes. There's clearly something different. But you also need to recommend or you need to understand that if we don't reopen the country, we may have 15, 16, 20,000 deaths from COVID-19. There are 40,000 suicides a year in this country, 45,000 suicides a year in this country. We could see 60, 70. You could lose more people to suicide than to the virus if you don't give people hope and make them understand that we're going to be okay and we're going to get through this together. But we got to get out of the virus first. It is 52 after the hour. I hope you guys survived all the storms and whatnot. Goodness gracious. Uh, let's go to the phone. Seth in Loganville, you're going to be next this morning. Welcome. Hi, how are you, Eric? I'm good. How are you? Good, sir. I was wondering if you've seen any reporting on people who vape, if they have a higher risk of forming complications when they if they contract COVID-19. Oh, that, you know, I have gotten this question from so many people. I finally went out and started asking the question because I've gotten a ton, uh, both on uh, questions about uh, usage of marijuana, usage of tobacco products, uh, usage of vaping, uh, both vaping tobacco and, and uh, marijuana products. Here's, I, I, I've talked to now probably seven or eight different doctors on this. Let me tell you what, what all of them have said. Um, there is actually uh, for smoking actual cigarettes. Uh, there does seem to be among young people, some correlation of this may be why more young people are getting it than we thought. And, and particularly in Italy, the death toll among the old, 
uh, overwhelmingly they were smokers. The people who were dying are people, particularly men who smoked. Uh, so there is a correlation between actual cigarette usage. Uh, the vaping usage, there doesn't seem to be. Uh, and, and there's been some speculation in it, but every doctor I've talked to has said that vaping long-term can cause a lot of the lung issues that tobacco smoking causes, but that it actually happens more slowly and over a much longer period of time. So they don't actually believe there's a correlation, although they admit there's a lot we still don't know. Um, the biggest issue, though, is in particular with European young people, uh, there's still a lot of more, much more cigarette usage in uh, your, among European youth than vaping. In this country, a lot of kids have switched to vaping products. And in Europe, it's still a lot of cigarettes. Uh, and if you want the, there to be a correlation between youth and getting a bad case of this disease, there's a there are some speculation on twofold. One is cigarettes uh, or actual uh, marijuana joints. It has to do more with the the burning of things getting into your lungs than it actually has to do with the product. Uh, and but then the other thing is young people being much more likely to be more heavily exposed because they're around people who have it, they don't think they can get it, and so their exposure is orders of magnitude higher uh, than those who just get it in passing. And the combination of the two seems to be what's causing some young people to have really, really bad cases of this, uh, more so than they originally thought. And there is, and keep in mind, this is all speculation because there is so much that uh, you can't, um, that we don't know yet. We're still learning so much, which is another reason so many doctors want to continue on with shelter in place. But there's the other thing uh, here is we don't know why some people get the get COVID-19 and have worse symptoms than others. But if we follow standard viral modeling, one of the things doctors seem to suspect is that if you come into heavy contact with it, you're more likely to have a heavier infection. That is... If you're passing someone at the grocery store who coughs and you wind up getting it, you're probably going to have a more mild case than if you stood there talking to that person for five minutes, breathing in uh, the water vapor from their mouth uh, within a six-foot distance. That's why they want social distancing. That seems to be a thing. Um, but again, this is all speculation. There's there's a lot of new stuff there. Um, it is... Um, it, it's it's going to be problematic, I suspect, uh, for us to to see long term how this shakes out. There's just so much information out there, we just don't know. Now, I want to go back to the phones uh, to Ashley in Los Angeles. Welcome. Hey, hey, Eric. I'm so glad you're still doing your show. Thanks for sticking it out. Sure. Um, I was actually recommended your live stream by my friend um, because I told her I was looking to watch something that would stop me from ever being horny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we we, we kind of suspected it was a troll. That, by the way, is why I, I stopped the live stream. Yes, um, I, I, I turned off the live stream uh, because we suspected this person may have been a troll. Figured we'd let her get on to find out, but went to commercial. So, ha. Um, we need better trolls, I guess, uh, in any event, um, there's so much we don't know about the virus. There's so much we, we just, well, we're not sure about, and that's why so many doctors, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, who's a doctor and he's, he was in the, this is no big deal camp. He was in the, uh, there, there's just no reason for us to do anything camp. 
And now he's working around the clock. He doesn't want to be around his family. He's afraid he's going to get the virus. Uh, and he's overwhelmed with patients. And it's not just, you know, he, he was, and he's in middle Georgia, by the way. He's in middle Georgia dealing with this. And he's concerned about it, and he used to not be concerned about it. And he's in the stay inside camp. He's in the this is a very big deal camp. Supplies are running low. Hospitals are being overwhelmed. We need to get back to work. He wants everybody to go back to work, but we can't go back to work now. And I just, I, I, I'm, I'm trusting the doctors who I know more than anyone else. I was actually having a discussion right before I came on air this morning. I was having a discussion with a friend of mine uh, who is deeply concerned about the long-term ramifications of an economic downturn and what it's going to do to people's mental health and addiction and everything else. And I agree with him. As I noted, I, I completely agree with that. And he says he just doesn't trust anyone right now to, to tell him what's going on and what's true and what's not and, and what to believe and what to think. And and we're both in the same camp of I'm, I'm trusting the people I know. And the people I know, I find it very interesting that I've got a lot of conservative friends who think this is all overblown. And I got a lot of conservative doctor friends of mine who thought it was overblown and now think everybody needs to stay home. And, and I find that to be the most notable point here, that my doctor friends who were dismissive now take it very seriously. When we come back, what about the economy, though? The effects, your 401k, Chris Burns is going to join me to talk about all that. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, around the nation and the world. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Coming up at the bottom of this hour, Mike Davis from the Article 3 Project is going to join me. The Article 3 Project uh, is uh, working to get judges confirmed. I don't know if you guys saw this or not. This is fantastic. Uh, there's a story in the um, in the uh, Washington Post. It's an op-ed that Mitch McConnell on his uh, throne of skulls confirms his 8,000th some odd judicial nominee. The left is really upset with Mitch McConnell continuing to confirm judges. Uh, if we have time, we'll get to that. We'll get to your phone calls as well. I do want to talk to Mike Davis. Right now, though, I want to talk to uh, the CEO, the head, the, the the top guy at Dynamic Money, a sponsor of this program, also a friend and my actual financial advisor. I won't ask him about my personal refinance right now, but I will talk to Chris Burns. How are you this morning? A throne of skulls. Yeah, yeah, you know, I want one of those. I, I thought I wanted a, uh, a, I wanted a throne of swords like in Game of Thrones, but nah, I think I want skulls now. Yeah, I suppose. How are you, sir? I am well. Uh, from 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 your quarantine to my quarantine, uh, what you thinking about this? The, all the market turmoil right now, and it, it, how things are looking for people. Yeah, so one of the big takeaways, I think, for a lot of folks right now, because it's confusing a little bit, but if you watch the last number of days, the markets have been the primary indexes are going up and people are going, well, what's going on? And just remembering that the market and the economy are not the same thing. That just because the market, the market's going to be far more up and down and volatile and you're going to see growth. And what's going on in the economy is very different. So in one sense, we look at what's going on, like we just got the job numbers of 6.6 .6 million more unemployment uh, applications last week. They revised the week before that to 6.9. And so you can see how this is going to create this significant ripple, even when all the virus itself is, is, is contained, because we've got 
a lot of people not working, which means a lot of money not being put back into the economy because people are not buying things, et cetera. There's just ripples all over the economy. So that makes sense of where the economy is going to, it's going to take a, a while to get all that back. Um, but you might see the market come back a lot faster than the economy overall. And the other piece is that there's going to be information that comes out in the coming months that could make the market tank. And again, it has nothing to do directly with the virus. It can be information. It's just these ripples. So as, as the market digests, something the virus might have been a cause of months before, but no one was really looking at it. And then the market gets hit in a few months. Just think about the market more like your day-to-day temperature gauge that's going to go up and down, but it doesn't necessarily give you that 30,000-foot view of how is the actual economy doing. Well, and yeah, we've seen this in in the past during other financial crises, how small businesses, mom and pop shops doing terrible, uh, and yet the stock market going gangbusters, a real disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street. Yeah, certainly, because we've gotten back at this point a, a decent amount. We're still down you know, significantly for the year, but comparative to where we were a few weeks ago, we've actually got gained some ground in terms of indexes right now, but that could change quickly. And so this is why I harp so hard on people not to be, I hate to say it, but just daily news watchers when it comes to the market. Now, on the one hand, all of us being at home, there's a lot more opportunity to have the TV on or just be checking what's going on constantly. And it's not that that's a terrible thing, but it can misrepresent the big picture. Because again, every day you're going to see these changes in the market that aren't necessarily um, indicative of where this is going long term. And I think for most people, the big the big thing to, to kind of own, I had a conversation last night with somebody about this, just become, kind of really taking in the reality that, hey, we might be able to contain the virus and be able to make forward movement in the next number of weeks and months to where we see significant changes there and we're out and about again, et cetera. But the long-term economic reality gets worse every single week that we see more people unemployed, that we see more companies going out of business, and the government's doing everything they can to stop that, but they don't have unlimited abilities to stop this. So it's just going to take a while for the economy to get back on any sort of sure footing here. Now, let me ask you this, because I, I was I was trading text messages with a, a friend of mine who's a financier, used to be at Goldman Sachs, uh, now in a different firm up in New York. And one of his concerns is that there are a number of, of places that were surviving, particularly in financial houses and, and investment firms in New York, that they were surviving because the market was good, uh, but mm. were so unstable if the market tanked that they would have collapsed. And now because of the bailout programs, they may very well be able to survive longer, but that's just going to make them even more economically unstable, which is going to further cause us long-term problems. Yeah, no, I think this is the incredibly hard line between what I believe in, which is free market economics and capitalism versus where you see significant government intervention, like we're seeing right now, where the government is coming in and putting trillions of dollars into trying to keep things going. And on the one hand, as a person living through the crisis, we go, we need all the help we can get. Businesses need all the help they can get, et cetera. We want to make sure, you know, we don't want to see things be any worse. But long term, there's no doubt that the residual, the kind of the collateral damage of that, even though there's good maybe for individuals in this, the collateral side is that people that should be going under aren't because we're not letting competition work. And we saw the same thing back in the financial crisis with the whole too big to fail concept. So there's a lot of companies that maybe weren't run properly or had a whole lot of corruption going on and things that should never have been happening that should have failed 
but they didn't because we we esteemed basically that what they were doing overall would be more it'd be more harmful for them to go away. But the problem is that doesn't incentivize them to change their practices. And so if a company knows, look, we're making money hand over foot and the government's going to bail us out whenever there's a problem, why are they incentivized to become better at what they do? There has to and, and that's that's kind of the core problem when the government is jumping so deeply into the private market. Yeah, I, I I have that concern. I really do. Um, but I also don't know that the government is smart enough to be able to discern uh, which ones are worthy of saving and which, one, which ones aren't. So better, I guess, to save them all than let them all sink in, in this economy. Uh, but then that translates back to Main Street. And most Americans work for small businesses. Uh, they've got 401ks. Gone are the days of the lavish pension plans. What should yep. individuals be looking for right now? Yeah, and the answer to this has changed a lot in the last number of weeks. Before all of this, something that we would talk about a lot is just make sure your risk level is healthy. So if something like this happens, you're okay. But now we're in the middle of it. So there's no use sitting and going, hey, make sure your risk level is, is healthy for a lot of people because it's like, I'm sitting in this right now. What do I do? Well, if you're young right now, I would just – well, actually, let me say this. Across the board – the number one thing is if you don't have savings, that you have liquidity and that you have the ability to fall back on something, um, if your job goes away or if you have hours cut, I have people calling me from all different spectrums where they're still working, but their hours are down. They've lost their job completely. They're furloughed for a period of time. Whatever that is, that liquidity becomes critical. So understand what your options are. And the government opened up a lot of new options with the CARES Act. For instance, you're now allowed to take money out of a 401k if your if your company allows it the company has to allow it but the government says it's okay um and you have much more flexible repayment terms on that you don't owe the 10 percent penalty if you're under 59 and a half those are all great and important for you to know but the next level down is should i be doing that and because we live in that market driven reality you kind of have to sit now at this point and go look if i have to meet the basic necessities of life that's the kind of program I should draw on at this point because that's it's more important that my family's taken care of. But if we're doing okay, now is not the time just to go, hey, this is great. I can pull money out of the 401k and have a little extra padding because that money is your long-term stability. That is your long-term ability to retire. And so th- this is what becomes challenging is all these stimulus programs open up, and those are great and important and needed. But then the question is, well, what is the option that you should be taking? Because some things might be important for someone else, but it hurts you down the road, and you didn't even realize that. Uh, yeah, that that is a concern. Uh, so I, how do people – I mean, I don't even know how I, how I articulate the question right now, and I, I, somewhat selfishly thinking of myself, but, but others as well, is how do you, in a situation like this that we've never been in before – uh, where there's so much information out there that comes so fast and so many people just don't know who to believe and so much of the information they hear gets wrong. How do you plan long-term around situations like that? Yeah, so the key is, and, and it's kind of it's corny, but the reason our company is called Dynamic Money is because one of my core beliefs is successful planning is being able to pivot and shift and move based on the unexpected because nobody could ever predict this and nobody will be able to be able to predict exactly, you know, the next thing that comes along in five, 10 years, whatever that is. And so the, in my mind, it's this for everyone, like I, like I just mentioned, but, but, but here's why 
there's never going to be a time that you don't need that liquid cash, that you don't need that fallback that says, I can handle what's going on. Because in the midst of all this, the people that feel the most confident are people that are sitting, that have money set aside, that know they can go months without income if they had to. Even if that never happens, the peace that gives you is huge. Those people right now can actually keep putting money into the market in what might be one of the best times for investing ever because they're able to put that money away because they have the money set aside. But if you're not in that position, the best way to get there is to temporarily say, you know what, I'm not going to pay anything but the minimums on my loans. I'm not going to keep contributing to a 401k. I'm going to try to leave my money in in that, but I'm not going to keep contributing until I have enough cash set aside that I feel more comfortable right now. And I know for a lot of people, they're hearing that and going, look, I lost my job. I don't have any ability to set aside funds. And that's where we look at, well, what stimulus measures are available to you? We do everything we can at this point. But long term, the way you plan for it is give yourself that flexibility, build the foundation first. And once the foundation is built, then you can capitalize on opportunities that other people can't. Like right now, if you're able to invest in the market, that's that's fantastic because you're going to see great growth over the long haul. But a lot of people shouldn't be doing that because they are not at a place where they're ready to handle if they lose their job. So that's the key. Build that foundation, and then you have so much more freedom down the road. That makes a lot of sense. And people can go to dynamicmoney.com if they want to reach out to you and, and start building for the future. Yeah, dynamicmoney.com. They can also just ask questions. A lot of folks have a lot of questions right now about their specific situation. So please use us as a resource. We would love to be helpful in any way we can. Sounds good. Chris Burns, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Eric. Bye. Uh, in fact, I'll see him on, on Sunday. He, he's been completely quarantined, as have we, and he's got to come use my radio studio to be able to do his radio show on Sunday. Uh, you can go to dynamicmoney.com and reach out to them as a resource if you have questions. Uh, and they're, by the way, they're fee only, so they're, they're not going to charge you commissions. They're not going to try to sell you products. Uh, they're just going to give you good advice, and that's why my wife and I use them, and we struck up a friendship in the course of, of dynamic money, helping us, uh, figure out our long-term plans. Now, uh, I wanted to be able to take your phone calls. My apologies to those of you who are on hold and, and hung up because I was talking to Chris, uh, feel free to circle back, uh, 877-973-7425. That's 877-97-ERIC. Uh, and at the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk about the judicial confirmations because life goes on beyond the virus. There's still a lot of stuff happening out there in politics, including Bernie Sanders, Dropping out, but not. I'll explain. A buddy of mine literally just sent me this. While the World Health Organization vehemently disagrees, Dr. Jürgen Risland, lead doctor at the Institute for Virology at Saarland University Hospital in Germany, went on record to say this. Drinking whiskey can protect against COVID-19, and that is definitely one report we can all get behind. While appearing on The Morning Show, Dr. Rislin was asked about whether or not drinking alcohol could kill any viruses a person may have ingested. Yes, of course, that's true, Dr. Rislin responded. And the higher the percentage of alcohol, the better it is. For example, if you're a whiskey lover, that's certainly not a bad idea, he continued, while offering this bit of sage advice. But of course, you need to bear in mind that you can't do that every 15 minutes. That is something else to consider. <laughs> you gotta love the Germans. Oh, you, you, you got to. So if you haven't heard, Bernie Sanders, he's he's going away now, but he's not quite going away. On a practical note, let me also say this. 
I will stay on the ballot in all remaining states and continue to gather delegates. While Vice President Biden will be the nominee, we must continue working to assemble as many delegates as possible at the Democratic Convention, where we will be able to exert significant influence over the party platform and other functions. So he's not actually going away away. He's he's going away, but he's not quite going away. So so we can't. Yeah, you know that my sisters this morning sent me something they had both seen uh, that four weeks into socialism, Bernie Sanders bails. <laughs> Poor Bernie. Which takes me to the state of our presidential campaign. I wish I could give you better news, but I think you know the truth. And that is that we are now some 300 delegates behind Vice President Biden, and the path toward victory is virtually impossible. So while we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. Yay! And so today, I am announcing the suspension of my campaign. Please know that I do not make this decision lightly. In fact, it has been a very difficult and painful decision. Over the past few weeks, Jane and I, in consultation with top staff and many of our prominent supporters, have made an honest assessment of the prospects for victory. If I believed we had a feasible path to the nomination, I would certainly continue the campaign. But it's just not there. I know that there may be some in our movement who disagree with this decision, who would like us to fight on to the last ballot cast at the Democratic Convention. I understand that position. But as I see the crisis gripping the nation, exacerbated by a president unwilling or unable to provide any kind of credible leadership and the work that needs to be done to protect people in this most desperate hour, I cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign they cannot win, and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us in this difficult hour. But let me say this very emphatically. As you all know, we have never been just a campaign. <laughs> no, you've been about completely upending America. You know, I, I've got to... Yeah. It is a miracle of modern technology. I don't know whether it was Duolingo or Rosetta Stone or or Siri or Google. The ability to, in real time, translate Sanders' speech from its original Soviet into English is, was impressive there as he spoke to his his commie supporters. Here's John King from CNN on all this. Dan Abash, um, to you first. What struck me the most there is Senator mm-hmm. Sanders, in saying goodbye, did acknowledge that Joe Biden had an insurmountable lead, but he didn't say anything nice about Joe Biden. He did not say he'd spoken to him. He did not say he would work with him. He said it was imperative to beat President Trump, but there was no big embrace of Joe Biden. He said nicer things about Joe Biden back during some of the Democratic debates than he said in saying goodbye. It was really noteworthy uh, that that was not part of his message at all. In fact, it's funny you say that as he was speaking, I was texting with people in and around Joe Biden asking if he had gotten a phone call because it was so uh, glaringly absent from Bernie Sanders' speech. But it was very clear, uh, sort of 
understanding Bernie Sanders, covering him for years, as all of us here have, uh, that he wanted to make this about his accomplishments, about the accomplishments of the movement, uh, to use Ryan Noble's term, uh, that he, rightly so, is very proud of building. Uh, and I think it's also in keeping with um, the understanding that he has of that movement, and that if he did right out of the bat as he's letting them down a big warm embrace of Joe Biden, it might be counterproductive in the ultimate goal that he has, which is getting Donald Trump out of the White House, and that means helping Joe Biden. So that seems to be, uh, uh, I think, probably a big part of why Bernie Sanders didn't do that big warm embrace. <laughs> oh, the Democrats. So, so they've decided to... Um, They've decided to go with the guy who's doesn't seem to be all there anymore. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't mean it mean. There's just there's the Joe, you know, the Donald Trump of 2020 is the Donald Trump of 2016 is the Donald Trump of 2011. The Joe Biden of 2020 is not the Joe Biden of 2016. He's just not. And anyone who tells you otherwise is, is spinning this thing. There's clearly he has aged in, in brain wise in every other way, um, and it shows on the campaign trail. And there are Democrats who want to beat Donald Trump. They believe that he can pull over people, and he can. Then the polling shows he can. But is it sustainable long term with more exposure? I don't know that it actually is. Time will tell. Uh, but right now, I would say he may be the front runner. But I don't know that that's sustainable for him. Life continues beyond the virus. Uh, one of those issues is Mitch McConnell and judicial confirmations. I'm I'm waiting for um, Mike Davis to join me with the Article 3 project. Uh, he had been the chief counsel for nominations for Chuck Grassley. He was a law clerk to uh, Justice Gorsuch as well. He should be joining me here in just a few minutes. Uh, and, you know, he and I, we've known each other, interacted each other with each other, I guess I should say, uh, online for a while, but we've never actually spoken by phone. Uh, but uh, in the run-up to this, and I'm going to have to ask him about this, I told you guys I wanted to talk about this. This is the headline. This is an opinion piece. Alexandra Petrie, who is a uh, liberal columnist at the Washington Post. The headline, sitting on a ga- on a throne of skulls. Mitch McConnell confirms his 8,999th judge. (laughs) So the left is attacking Mitch McConnell for having the audacity, the audacity to continue judicial confirmations in a time of global pandemic. The whole landscape was barren. The fires burned everywhere. And in the smoldering remains of the Senate, Mitch McConnell sat on a throne of skulls, making preparations to confirm his 8,999th judge. Mitch McConnell would leave no vacancy behind. The people were long gone. The streets, they were empty. And some old scraps of burned newspaper tossed on the hot, sulfurous wind and Mitch McConnell was still confirming judges. The sky was a dark, angry red. The sun was not visible and had not been visible for a long time. 
There were no longer any rhinoceroses whatsoever. There were exactly three birds. The halls of Congress were empty except for John Quincy Adams' ghost and one horse buzzard perched on a cracked torso in Statuary Hall. And Mitch McConnell was still confirming judges. Just one more, he muttered. His voice echoed in the rows of bones all around him. He had been astutiously confirming judges for a very long time, although night and day were now the same and were difficult to measure. Clocks had ceased to exist. Just one more lifetime appointment. Someone crawled towards him through the dust on hands and knees. Why? creaked forth from his chapped lips. Mitch, why? It might have been Chuck Grassley. No one could say there was no one there to say. Is there some curse you're trying to break? Is there some reason, the voice asked. We can walk and chew gum at the same time, Mitch McConnell said, as though there were an answer. There had not been chewing gum for a long time. This is an actual, oh, and it goes on from there. This was an actual piece in the Washington Post about Mitch McConnell and his quest to confirm judge in a time of pandemic. Apparently, the only thing you're allowed to do in a time of pandemic is advance a socialist agenda. You can't confirm conservative judges who might fight back against it. One person helping Mitch McConnell fight back against the, the left on this and confirm these judges is Mike Davis, the, the head of the Article 3 project, joining me by phone. How's that story? that throne of skulls sitting for you there, Mike? It's beautiful. Uh, so thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm wondering if this columnist is now working for the McConnell campaign. <laughs> I'm wondering about that liberal call. I, I saw that headline and thought McConnell's going to want this framed and sent to everyone in Kentucky. Yes. I'm Mitch McConnell and I approve this message. <laughs> now, uh, let's let's get down to business on, on these judicial confirmations that, that is just causing all sorts of concern on the left. Tell me about the Article 3 project. Yeah, the Article 3, I started the Article 3 project after I left the Senate Judiciary Committee. I, I worked, I was the chief counsel for nominations to Chairman Chuck Grassley on the Senate Judiciary Committee last Congress. Uh, he's my home state senator. I worked for him, and when he left the Senate Judiciary Committee, chairmanship to take over the finance committee, I left and started the Article 3 project. And what we do with the Article 3 project is make the positive case for President Trump's judicial nominees, punch back against the left's attacks, uh, uh, punch back against the left's attacks on sitting judges. So these judges feel like they uh, have some cover and they don't have the Linda Greenhouse effect and move to the left. We defend the confirmation process. The Democrats are trying to say the, the confirmation process is unfair and unprecedented, which is nonsense, and we can punch back against th those attacks. And then we uh, punch back against what I call the assaults on judicial independence. So the Democrats can't seem to win elections, and so they want to push radical schemes like court packing, uh, term limits, and even impeachment. So that's what we do. We're fighting for President Trump's judges and judicial nominees. Well, you know, you, you mentioned Democrats can't win elections. I thought it was very funny that the, the governor of Wisconsin had multiple opportunities over the last month to delay the Wisconsin election and refused at the last minute, decided to, and was overruled by the courts. And suddenly the, the problem is conservative judges uh, handing Republicans favors as opposed to a governor who dragged his feet for a month. Yeah. It's that what happened in Wisconsin is complete nonsense. The 
in a time of a crisis, you want to make sure that you're following the laws because you have, you know, and you have despots who take advantage of elections, uh, take advantage of crises and move election rules and change things around at the last minute so they can win. I mean, right now you want the rule of law. You want to follow the rules. And what they did in Wisconsin is they went to the state legislature and asked the state legislature to change the rules, and the state legislature declined. And so some liberal activist federal judge in Wisconsin just did what the state legislature declined to do. And thankfully, the Supreme Court stepped in and uh, took a whack at this and said, we're not going to have liberal judicial activism right now. Good for them. Good for them. Now, one of the the judges that you guys are gearing up to advance is come under all sorts of fire from the left. Uh, I I added my name to a letter from the Article 3 project, along with a number of other conservatives, and that's Justin Walker, who's on the District Court for the Western District of Kentucky, who is looks like going to be nominated for or has been nominated for the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Yeah, uh, just, Judge Justin Walker is a star. He, this is a guy, he, he, he was raised by his mother in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, he is the first person in his family to go to college. He went to Duke University for undergrad, graduated uh, summa, cum laude, uh, Phi, uh, Phi Beta Kappa, went on to Harvard Law School. He was on the uh, Harvard Law Review uh, the Journal of Law and Public Policy was an editor of both of those, uh, graduated magna, went on to clerk for then-Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit, the very court to which Judge Justin Walker is now nominated. And then he went to clerk for Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court. He's been a law professor uh, in Kentucky for a long time. Um, he's young. He's smart. He's conservative. He understands that a judge's uh, limited but critical job is to apply the law as written and not how they wish it were written, like this Wisconsin, this liberal Wisconsin federal judge just did with the, the election law. Uh, judge Justin Walker is a home run pick for the D.C. Circuit, which is the second highest court in the land. Well, and I, I was going to say that it seems like there are two major concerns from the left on this. One is that uh, he's 37 years old, so he could be there for a very long time. And also that it's the D.C. Uh, Court of Appeals, which is considered widely to be one of the most uh, the most preeminent court after the Supreme Court. In fact, uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, moved from there to uh, the Supreme Court. And if I understand right, uh, this guy was a clerk for Kavanaugh. Yeah, he clerked for Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit. And what's so good about this is he's going to bring to the second highest court in the land his everyday American upbringing, his Midwestern sensibilities, impeccable credentials, conservative judicial philosophy, and his brilliant legal mind. He is going to be great on the D.C. Circuit. What's so important about the D.C. Circuit is that's the key federal appellate court uh, that it protects all Americans from the arbitrary and harmful government actions by um, the Washington's out-of-control administ- administrative state. And, you know, in other words, the D.C. Circuit is the circuit that protects us all from the reptiles in the swamp. It is a very important, very important court. Now, 
what what angles of attack are the left coming up with? I, I mean, I'm assuming that he's he's too young. He's not qualified. He's clearly a closet racist, uh, and he worked for Donald Rumsfeld, so he's he's also an evil engine of the American war machine. Um, but it just seems like we've gotten to this point where the left enjoys smearing these guys uh, and knowing the Democrats are going to amplify, it, it, essentially making it almost so no person wants to go through the character assassination machine to get on a court. Yeah, I mean, they'll do this. So what's what's good about Judge Justin Walker is, is he was a uh, he was a former law clerk to uh, Justice Kavanaugh. And he was a, a key figure in getting out there and promoting Justice Kavanaugh during his confirmation. So he's he's seen this up close personally. And uh, he's, I think he's ready to go. I, I don't think he's going to be cowed by the left and their their, uh, you know, their recycled garbage that they do with all these nominees. So, I, you know, they're going to say he's too young. The ABA said he's not qualified because he's too young. Uh, you know, the American Bar Association, you have to remember, is just a liberal dark money group right. hunting for the trial attorneys. And so, you know, if they, 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 the, the, the ABA wants their, their liberal trial attorneys as judges. And so, uh, you know, Justin Walker doesn't fit that mold for them. So they're going to say he's not qualified. Now, what is the state of play on on the confirmations? Because I know that there's been some hesitation about getting Congress together a, a whole bunch with this uh, virus spreading around the country. Where do we stand on on the confirmation processes for judges in general right now? Well, I think that there's I, so I ran thirty nominations hearings last Congress when I worked for Chairman Chuck Grassley, and there are many ways that you can hold these hearings and votes in a way that is uh, very safe and follows the regular order and historic practice. Now, remember, when nominations come to the Senate, you, you wait for the nomination of the paperwork. You generally wait 28 days to hold the hearing after the nomination and paperwork come. And at the hearing, so let, let's say that, uh, you know, with Justin Walker, you could have a hearing as early as May 6th. At the hearing, you can have the hearing in a big, one of the big hearing rooms like the Supreme Court room or even bigger. If you have to have it on the Senate floor, have it on the Senate floor so you can spread out people. Uh, you can have senators rotate through if they don't want to sit there. If they, if they don't feel comfortable in the room, you can have them rotate through and ask their questions, which is the normal course anyway. Uh, during regular hearings, the senators just rotate through because they have other business going on. Um, you you know, if, if senators don't feel like coming to the hearing, which is oftentimes the case, uh, the 30 hearings, senators did, just didn't show up. They socially distanced themselves by not showing up, they can submit uh, written questions for the record instead of uh, coming to the hearing and asking questions. And so I think that that would take care of that pretty easily. The hearing would be easy because there's not an attendance requirement. It's, it's the committee votes, the markup meetings, where you have quorum requirements. You have to have two markup votes in order to get the nominees out of the committee to the floor. The first markup in swamp language, you have to burn the hold, and then the second markup is where you vote them out. The markups could be as early as June 4th and June 11th, Hopefully by that time, this coronavirus uh, will have subsided. But if not, again, you can have the markups in the bigger rooms. Uh, maybe the Democrats can agree that they don't need to have that markup on, on the first markup, whether it's June 4th or whatever the date. They can, they can agree not to have it. They can agree just to vote, burn the hold, and then they can just have the vote the next week uh, on June 11th or whatever the date is. Uh, um, I, I, but, yeah. I'm willing to guess uh, that the Democrats will suddenly, if this moves forward, will suddenly behave as if there's not a pandemic afoot and, and <laughs> suddenly act like it really is no big deal. They need to be there while belly aching the whole time. 
Well, I mean, they'll complain and say that, you know, Republicans are putting their lives at risk. But I would just say that if there were a trillion dollars in a committee room and Democrats had to come to that committee room to get a piece of that trillion dollars, I think they would be like snakes in a pit trying to get all <laughs> of that money. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Mike, thanks for stopping by. Uh, a good luck to the judge on this as well and, and all your efforts. I certainly do appreciate what the Article 3 project is doing to advance not just him, but but all these conservative nominees. Great. Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, that. I appreciate that you signed that letter and thank you for all that you did. Thank you. Uh, that's Mike Davis here. Article three project. Uh, you can check him out on Twitter as well. Uh, what is he? Actually, we, we text message all the time on Twitter. It is M-R-D-D-M-I-A, M-R-D-D-M-I-A on Twitter. Uh, Mike Davis, uh, the head of the Article 3 Project. Great group. Uh, your calls when we come back, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We do kind of need to get into some of the raw politics of the day as well with Bernie Sanders out and Joe Biden uh, all but sealing the deal with the Democrats. Why, hello there. <laughs> Hang on a second. I gotta, I gotta go to the soundbite. Um, yes, we had the presidential press conference there yesterday. We had the Secretary of State was there, the Attorney General was there, the Vice President was there, Dr. Fauci was there, Dr. Burks was there, the President of the United States was there. The reporters were socially distanced, and the reporter for the for the New York Post decided he needed to ask this question. So it, one of the biggest rating hits um, of the coronavirus, aside from these briefings, has been a show on Netflix called uh, Tiger King. Yeah. And uh, the man who's the star of this is a former zoo owner who's serving a 22-year prison sentence. Uh, he's asking you for a pardon, saying he was unfairly convicted. Um, your son yesterday jokingly said that uh, you know he was going to advocate for it. And I was wondering if you've seen the show and if you have any thoughts on uh, pardoning uh, Joe Exotic. Which son? It must be Don. It, it I had a feeling it was Don. Is that what he said? I don't know. I know nothing about it. He has 22 years for what? What did he do? He allegedly hired someone to murder an animal rights activist, but he said that he didn't do that. And he was. You think he didn't do it? Are you on his side? Uh, well, I, are you, are you recommending sides, a pardon? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not advocating anything. As a reporter, that. you're not allowed to do that. You'd be criticized by these. Would you recommend a pardon? I'm not weighing it on time. I don't think you would. I don't think you would. Go ahead. You have a question? I'll take a look. Is that Joe Exotic? That's Joe Exotic. (laughs) By the way, that was him leaning over to to Jim Acosta saying, do you think I should pardon him, Jim? (laughs) Acosta Acosta didn't look thrilled. So my buddy Caleb Howe, who who is a great follow on uh, Twitter, uh, what is, what is Kate? Let me make sure, uh, and, cause he better be listening right now. Um, let's see here. It is at Caleb. Oh, it's all one word. Caleb Howe, uh, H O W E. And so he works for the website Mediaite and he, he, he took the video footage of the press corps when the question was asked by the New York post guy and the reaction of all of the reporters in the room. Now, here's the thing. This president is a little bit different from most because Donald Trump is more willing than the others to actually engage with the reporters in the room. Uh, Most presidents, typically, they'll have a press conference. And, you know, typically uh, the Associated Press gets the first question. That's typically what happens by tradition uh, because the AP 
and Reuters are the wire services, and every newspaper, news outlet in the world can take their information and repackage it. And so typically you go to AP, you go to Reuters, and then you start with the national networks, maybe CNN, go to Fox, uh, you go to ABC, CBS, NBC, so you get the TV networks, go to the Washington Post or the New York Times, you get them covered. Uh, and then you start working through the regional media and the other media. You go to the conservative media, you go to the liberal media. This president, he just asks everybody, lets everybody ask him questions, and he loves to fight with them. He loves to fight with Jim Acosta. And uh, so you don't have to, and, and they're socially distancing. When I started the show this morning, those of you who weren't here at the very beginning, I was laughing as I came in because a buddy of mine had sent me the clip right as the show started with the president. <laughs> Dr. Burks is on stage asking questions. The president says, I got a question for you. You see how all these people are distanced now and they got a bunch of people out of the room trying to get in the room and they can't get in the room because we got all the social distancing. Are we ever going to get back to a day where we got these people back in here piled on top of each other again? <laughs> and you can see the attorney general is standing behind him trying not to fall out laughing. <laughs> and Dr. Burks is looking at him like, are you for real? <laughs> And she does this very diplomatic answer. We're going to all have to reassess our lifestyles and the things we touch and, and the contact we have with people. <laughs> He's like, no, I want to know, can I keep these jerks out of here? <laughs> these are the things that I find endearing about the president that so many people get upset about. Like, I, I know a lot of people got, got upset. I've got a dear friend of mine who is very critical of me for finding it funny. The other day, they were talking about the models, and the president says, "I I had nothing to do with any of these models." This is, I mean, I've 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 had stuff to do with models in the past, just not that sort of model. <laughs> I thought it was funny. I mean, and I get it. I rolled my eyes. I kind of chuckled, like I cannot believe he just did that. But I also thought it was funny. Um, it it, it yeah, some you know. We have abandoned our sense of humors, not because of crisis, but because of the president. Uh, so many people, they just can't laugh anymore at any of this stuff. And come on, guys, some of this stuff is deeply funny. You may not like the guy, but can you laugh at all about this? Can you laugh at all about some of the things the president does? You should be able to laugh at what some of the stuff the president does. Life is too short not to laugh at some of it. And what are you going to do? Are you going to cry? I mean, and this is part of the problem we as a society have is everyone's just decided to be mad and angry. Life is too short to live that way. I don't understand some of these progressive activists, particularly the, the, the left-wing feminists who are out there all the time. Oh, that's not funny. No, actually, it is very funny. You should be able to laugh at this sort of stuff. You can't laugh at this. I'm a feminist. <laughs> yes, you should be able to laugh. You should. You and your comfortable shoes should be able to laugh. Um, and yet, for some reason, you can't. Uh, and and that's 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 your issue, not the rest of us. The rest of us should be able to laugh and get along. You know, Ellen DeGeneres is under attack today because she had the audacity to say um, being cooped up at home and not allowed out of the house is like being in jail. And <gasps> five people on the Internet were mad, so it became a story. No, she's actually right. She is. We'll be back in a few moments to ponder this. Why, hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Tomorrow, remember, come worship with me tomorrow. You're going to have a, a different uh, conservative talk radio experience tomorrow and just need to make sure you have a heads up on it. I don't want you to be thrown off. Uh, and we'll get into this a little bit today as well. Tomorrow is, is Good Friday. And every year on radio, I do a Good Friday show. And as I have mentioned uh, ad nauseum this week, 
I'm just trying to, because listen, I, I, I have, I, I started this program April or April, August 12th, started this program August 12th. And the reason I started it was I have always wanted to do a syndicated program. I would very much like to one day do a national program. But I started radio in 2011, and it was totally by accident. I, I really fell into radio by accident. And and I did a show on Good Friday, and it kind of became a thing, and I do it every year, and I will do two of them tomorrow, one with you guys, and then uh, one on my evening show uh, from 7 to 10. So I'll do six hours of radio tomorrow. And I'm happy to do it, and it will be not like something you're expecting. You, those of you who are coming expecting raw politics and, and viral talk tomorrow, you're going to be very disappointed. Uh, there will be music with words. There's going to be a lot of Johnny Cash and Andrew Peterson just just to prepare you. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to talk about different topics. We will talk some theology, but we will also talk about deeper, more meaningful things and how life relates to worldview. And that's what I like to do, to take a 50,000-foot view of the world uh, on Good Friday. And so I hope you'll join with me. You can't go to church tomorrow. You can't go to church on Easter. So come worship with me for, you can float in and out for three hours tomorrow as need be. Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll get something meaningful out of the program since you can't be at church. Uh, and some good music. And, and you guys have had a lot to do with picking the music. I have been asking. I have gotten a lot of suggestions on musical recommendations. You can follow me on Apple Music or Spotify at E.W. Erickson, and you can get the music. So a, a buddy of mine here in Macon actually texted me last night and said uh, it took him a while. He uses Amazon Music, and it took him a while to go from Instagram, where I put up the list, from Instagram back and forth to Amazon Music to rebuild the list. And I thought, I didn't even know anyone used Amazon Music. I've, I now had no one person on planet Earth who uses Amazon Music. And I'm sure there are other people who use Amazon Music. Uh, but, but I don't, uh, and, and I don't actually know anyone who did. Well, now I know one person who does <laughs> and, he's, and he's probably listening right now. Um, so, uh, let me, let me, let me get to tomorrow today a little bit. Let's, let's take a step back from all the other stuff real quick, because today's Holy Thursday. There is a progression, and you know, a lot of uh, a lot of Baptists. Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, I never knew about Holy Week. I mean, sure, I knew Palm Sunday and I knew Easter, but I even so, I'm from Louisiana. Now, I grew up in Dubai, so it's somewhat different. But I'm I'm from Louisiana, and I don't recall having knowing very many Catholics growing up uh, until we moved to Dubai. And of all things, our housekeeper was from Southern India and she was Catholic. Uh, but I, I don't, I, I did not grow up with a lot of Catholic friends. Ironically, I, I, I guess bad use of the word ironic, uh, but I, but I grew up, got involved in the conservative movement and virtually every major conservative leader in America is Catholic. It is fascinating to me how they, you know, they used to say the Republican party uh, or the Episcopal church is the Republican party at prayer. Now it's the Episcopal church when there are people in the church, um, <laughs> I saw a Babylon B article, uh, Episcopal church waves the fee to get in on Sunday. <laughs> 
Um, the Episcopal Church is now kind of the 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 Democratic Party at prayer, uh, if they even pray. Uh, but the 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 Republic, the conservative movement, the the Catholic Church is the conservative movement at prayer. I am fascinated by the number of my friends who are in the conservative movement who are deeply devoutly Catholic, and there is a huge effort among friends of mine to get me to convert to Catholicism, and it ain't gonna happen. Um, I, I got a buddy of mine texting me right now. I can see the text coming through. He's, he's on the list. I can see his messages come through and I, I'm sure that he's listening right now and that's what this is about, but y- you're not going to get me to convert John Calvin and I, we, we, we are, we are friends. Um, I, I am, I'm all about predestination is so it's not going to happen. Um, uh, but man, I'm a big, uh, Benedict the 16th fan. Uh, that guy's awesome. In fact, I was reading some of his Christology the other day and had a seminary professor of mine say that he is uh, the one time you will find a pope say anything nice about John Calvin is Christology. And sure enough, Benedict the Sixteenth and John Calvin see eye to eye when it comes to uh, the, the humanity of Jesus. So we'll spend time on that tomorrow, of all things. I, I, I do one, one show a year on theology, but I want to focus just a moment on the idea of Holy Week and Christianity in America, and you can't go to church. The governor of the state of Georgia yesterday extended the state shutdown until uh, April 30th. He has prohibited short-term rentals in the state of Georgia, so you cannot go rent a cabin in the North Georgia mountains or a house at Tybee Island. Now, you can't do it. It is prohibited by law. The state constitution gives a private contract right, but no one's going to sue the governor and challenge you based on that because there is a precedent for being able to waive those sorts of rules. And I have to tell you that I think the governor is in a no-win situation. I had a caller call in last night to my other program who is very, and he's called in before and he was livid at the idea of a shutdown. And now he says his sister, who is a Democrat, who didn't vote for Brian Kemp is livid because her business is going to go out of business because of the shutdown. And and he says, I'm not going to vote for Brian Kemp anymore. I'm like, who are you going to vote for? You know, if, if Stacey Abrams were governor, we would have shut down a lot sooner and it would have been much more strictly enforced. Kemp waited and he came under attack. He made a misstatement uh, saying that he didn't know that asymptomatic people could spread the disease. Now, we know he knew that because he said it on this very program a couple of times in March and released a statement to that effect March 16th saying that we have to put shelter in place in place for nursing homes because asymptomatic people can spread the disease. So it was a misstatement of his. Unfortunately, he's doubled down on this is just a partisan attack as opposed to coming out and pointing out the numerous times in March that he actually said asymptomatic people could get you, um, could, could carry the disease. The number of Republicans I know who have reached out, man, I knew this guy was an idiot. No, he actually, he's been on this program multiple times in February, March, talking about asymptomatic people spreading the disease. He just misspoke. The information was that there are people who will never, ever, ever get sick who could spread the disease. We always knew people who had no illness could spread the disease. We just did not know that uh, it could, there are people who would never, ever develop symptoms. Typically, the asymptomatic people do develop the symptoms eventually. But now we know as of last Wednesday, there are people who are never going to develop the symptoms who will spread the disease. Typhoid Marys, if you will, that's a new thing. And people have have grossly distorted it and paid no attention to his prior statements. Uh, people who didn't like him to begin with are now feeling very comfortable coming out. But I think he's doing a good job, and we should show him some grace. And, and that gets me to this point. 
as we, we reflect on Holy Week, you know, the Gospel of John was written. In fact, I, I've got a buddy of mine who in commercial break has been texting me back and forth on the issue of John and when it was written. And I, I believe that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written before AD 70. AD 70 is, is the fall of Jerusalem, uh, the destruction of the temple. And there are a lot of scholars who don't believe in the resurrection, so they can't believe that Jesus could actually foresee the fall of the temple. And so they say, oh, all these gospels had to be written after that because how would they have known it was going to happen? Well, if you're the God of all creation, of course you can know. And there's ample evidence uh, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, particularly Mark, were written before AD 70. But there's also a lot of evidence that John was not, or at least it wasn't put in final form until after AD 70. And in large part, we know that John died sometime around 8100. And with the rise of Trajan, John dies. uh, And that he was writing both uh, John 1, 2, and 3, Revelation and John, uh, part of it in exile. We know when the exile was, but we also know from people like Polycarp and Ignatius who studied under John. And that, by the way, that is why we know that Jesus was a historic figure, uh, because we know John was a historic figure. Uh, we, we know the people who studied under John. We know Ignatius and Polycarp were students of John. We know that Polycarp and Ignatius existed. We have the writings from Ignatius and Polycarp. We have the writings about them from the people who studied under them. You've got to write a whole lot of people, and, and we don't even need to get into the divinity issue here. You just have to write a whole lot of people out of history to write Jesus out of history. But it's just, it, it, it's it's fascinating when you get to John's account of the Lord's Supper and, and the timeline is slightly different. There are reasons for the timeline being slightly different from the other gospels. There are things that appear in John that didn't appear in the other gospels. Uh, for example, uh, we know from the gospel of John, which was written after the prior, go- written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We know that Lazarus, the story of Lazarus, not the rich man Lazarus, but Lazarus who was raised from the dead does not appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there have been some people who pointed to it and said, well, why on earth? This is such a big deal. Jesus raised the man from the dead. Why would they not have done it? Why would they not have, why would they not have pointed that out? Well, John notes in his gospel that the, the plot to kill Jesus went into overdrive when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And that the people, and note, I'm being very careful not to say the Jews. I don't want anyone to hear anti-Semitism in what I'm saying. The, the people, the sinners, they plotted to kill Lazarus in addition to killing Jesus. And so the prevailing sentiment, even among people who are skeptical of when the Gospels were written, people who are skeptical, that it is a widely held view that the reason the other three Gospels did not mention Lazarus was because they wanted to protect him and his family. Uh, that it is very clear that the plot to kill Jesus, John, again, just, just for perspective, and we don't just take this from his gospel, but from the people who trained under him, uh, namely Polycarp and, and Ignatius, we know that John was Jesus's best friend. He was the youngest of Jesus's disciples. He was the one who Jesus loved. Uh, he refers to himself as that. The others do that. There are lots of writings from people like uh, Irenaeus, who was an early church leader, who sat at the feet of Polycarp as Polycarp was an old man before he was executed and heard the stories about John and Jesus and uh, just the incredible stories that he shared beyond the gospel of John of things that John had done and the things John related that Jesus has done. Uh, in fact, a lot of the the ancillary sourcing of stuff you hear 
You hear people say, oh, did you hear about the story about Jesus? Well, it's not in the Bible. A lot of these things come from sources like Polycarp and Ignatius and and uh, Irenaeus recounting the things that Jesus did, the, recounting the things that John did as an old man in life. And, and we can verify the authenticity of him writing the book because there were so many eyewitnesses to him being alive. And one of the things John recounts uh, very specifically in his gospel is the new commandment. Uh, Holy Thursday is called Maundy Thursday. It comes from the Latin word mandatum, which is a commandment. And Jesus gives the new commandment to love as you've been loved, love others. And we are in this weird time in this country, but it's a global phenomenon uh, where political tribalism has taken such root in our society that a lot of times people have a really hard time relating to or, or loving the other. Because it's very easy once you've otherized someone that, that they're, they're something other than you, it becomes very easy to hate them. It becomes very easy to believe they're bad. And as we create for ourselves communities online where the communities more and more look exactly like us and think like us and share our worldview, we less and less encounter people on the other side in our neighborhoods who disagree with us but whom we would break bread with. And so it becomes easier and easier to believe the worst about the other side. And I fall into that and you fall into that. Everybody falls into that. And this is, is, this is a perfect time on Holy Thursday, uh, Maudie Thursday, uh, to remember that on this day, 1,987 years ago or so, Jesus told the disciples, told the apostles in the upper room to love one another, to love others, and that that's a commandment for us as well. And at a time of global pandemic, everyone is impugning everyone else's motivations and motives. We should try as best we can to, even if we disagree, to at least understand the other side some more. Understand them, even if we don't have to agree with people just to understand them. I've always thought it was notable that pro-lifers are more easily able to articulate a pro-abortion person's position than a pro-abortion position person's position, they can articulate a pro-lifer. When you talk to someone who's pro-abortion, typically what they'll say is, well, they just want to control our bodies. That that That's the prevailing zeitgeist of the pro-abortion movement. And with a, a pro-life person, they tend to understand that they don't, a, a pro-abortion person doesn't recognize that this is yet a child, that it is a viable option, uh, that it could be deeply disruptive to their lives. And, and so they believe that because it's not yet a person who can take care of itself, that this child can uh, be aborted. And a pro-lifer can articulate those positions on the other side without malice, and un- but can with understanding in a way a pro-abortion person can't because there's, there's not an ability to, to relate and you've got to be able to relate. Uh, you will be way more effective in a debate in, in pulling people to your side if you can, without imputing bad motives, explain the other side's arguments. And foundationally, presuppositionally, that comes from having an element of love, a, a willingness to be charitable to the other side. We, we are a, a people who lack grace these days. And again, that's why I hope you'll be here tomorrow so that we can talk about these things in a little more detail. Um, go for a deep dive. You can't go to church. You might as well come right here. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let's go to the phones to Charlie in Atlanta. Charlie, welcome to the program. Hey, Eric. I love your show. Listen, Thank you. Um, 
what is the feasibility of putting something like hydroxychloroquine in our drinking water just like we do with fluoride? You know, as a matter of fact, uh, oh, where did I read it? Yeah, there's there's a there's a news website, uh, K N E W Z, I think it is. It, it's um, I think what is it? Twenty first Century Fox, the successor to News Corp, put it out. Um, there there actually has been some writing about this, and here's the problem: uh, you can't do it uh, because of the supply, but more so because of dosing. Uh, the dosing matters, uh, and it also, it, when you put it in liquid form, it, it's it's got a distinctive that you're not going to get people to taste it, uh, or, or rather, you, you're not going to get people to drink the water because the water is going to taste like quinine, um, so it's not going to it's not going to work. But more importantly, the feasibility and the dosing requirements, and not everybody needs it. Now, for you know, the the left is making a very big deal about uh, hydroxychloroquine, and oh, the president's going to kill everybody. Let me play you this clip real quick from uh, William Barr, the Attorney General talking to Laura Ingram. No, I have been surprised at it. In fact, it was very disappointing because I think the president went out at the beginning of this thing and, and really was statesmanlike, uh, uh, trying to bring people together, working uh, with all the governors, uh, keeping his patience as he, uh, as he got these snarky gotcha questions from the, the White House media pool. And uh, it, it, the stridency uh, of the partisan attacks on him has gotten higher and higher, and it's really disappointing to see. And the politicization of, of decisions like the hydroxychloroquine has been amazing to me. Before the president said anything about it, there was fair and balanced coverage of, uh, of this pr very promising drug and the fact that it had such a long track record that the risks were pretty well known. And as soon as he uh, said something positive about it, uh, the media has been on a jihad to discredit the drug. It's, it's quite strange. A jihad as opposed to jihad. I'm from the South. We say jihad. <laughs> but, you know, he's right. Uh, Andrew Cuomo has said there have been encouraging anecdotal signs on the use of hydroxychloroquine. And the media was okay with that. It was when the president said it that suddenly they think, oh, we're going to get everybody killed. Now, look, it is true. It is absolutely true. We don't know dosing for everyone. There is, again, it's anecdote because there aren't enough uh, research. Well, we're talking research studies of, of 30 to 50 people at a time. And so it, it varies wildly. You can do a study of studies, so to speak, and maybe get a more accurate impression of it. That, but still, a lot of it is anecdotal. And that anecdote suggests that it benefits patients. The anecdote suggests that it benefits patients more with erythromycin as well. The anecdote suggests uh, that the people who have heart issues uh, spikes when you do a combo of hydroxychloroquine and erythromycin. And the anecdote suggests it works better for people who are not in ICU than people who have already gone into that critical uh, ICU stage. Uh, the sooner you get it when symptoms develop, the better off you seem to be. But again, it's all anecdote. It's not data, but the anecdotes are there. And the fact that the media is attacking the president for raising these issues when they were fine with it till he raised it tells you more about the media than about the science, the studies, and the medicine. That's unfortunate that we're at that point. My wife and I, we made the decision we were going to outsource some of our Easter prep and meal um, to Satterfields here in Macon, local barbecue place that uh, had closed, bought by new owners, reopened. 
And I'm hearing a lot of other people wanting to do that. And the Ag Commissioner, Gary Black, is stepping up as quickly as possible. Probably not going to be able to do it in time for Easter, but uh, there are going to be a number of sites set up to be able to connect you to the the growers and producers out there, the restaurants, um, the people who are making stuff with Georgia-grown food. Uh, there's one right now in the Atlanta area, chowdownatl.com. And I'm hoping that this will happen. You know, the, the food supply in the state is actually okay. Uh, it's the supply, it's the global supply chain for paper products that's somewhat of a problem. Although I got to tell you, even that's coming back online. I, I, I got an email from Amazon.com last night that they had their paper products were coming back in stock if I needed to order some. And I was able to get toilet paper and paper towels and they weren't going to ship until May 1st. And I got a, um, email from Amazon that they're actually going to ship way sooner than that. So the supply chain is there now. I want to get into some of the politics, some of the politics out there, and I want to play for you real quick this audio from the president yesterday. You have uh, a lot of people have done a terrific job, but this is something we've never seen before. So uh, I think we're reaching a level of uh, where it's going to start coming down, where it's going to start sloping down. Uh, The good thing is that uh, the number of beds needed, I think we were right about that. I was right. My group was right. Uh, they're not needing nearly as many beds as they thought. They're not needing as many ventilators as they thought. Uh, in fact, we just saw, in fact, I just saw in your show and a couple of other uh, people just reported back to me that everyone is in great shape from the standpoint of uh, ventilators, which are very hard because they're expensive and they're big, like it's a, you know, it's a, and they're very high tech. Uh, but they're very hard to get, and we're building thousands of them, and we have that in good shape. We're going to run. We have almost 10,000 in the stockpile, and we have our military ready, willing, and able. They'll be, they'll be taking them wherever the wave goes, wherever the monster goes. We'll be able to go there. You know, the ability of the government to allocate resources is always going to be political, but it's increasingly interesting to me how the 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 media is separating out things such that you would believe the president is withholding or giving supplies based on whether or not the people are nice to him and and here's the thing we know it's not actually happening that way we actually know that those areas that need resources are getting the resources we know this to be true And yet, the media continues to peddle these stories. Now, there's something else here. I want to play this. Kamala Harris. Uh, Joe Biden has picked up a couple of her fundraisers. A lot of people are saying, oh, that just means he's going to pick her. He's going to pick her. Not necessarily. But this is, she went on TV and she had this to say about the, the planning pandemic and what should have been done. In terms of dealing with the solutions to this problem, which means acknowledging it is a real serious issue and not a hoax. The president did that. Which means saying that, that one of the tools in the tool belt of the president in a crisis is to, is to use the Defense Production Act. The president did that. To require that where we don't have what we need to meet the crisis and meet the moment, we will create incentives and direction to the private sector to create those things. The president did that. In this case, ventilators, masks, tests. The president did all of that. It's very interesting. The Democrats are attacking the president, saying he didn't do the things that he did. 
the hydroxychloroquine hysteria continues from Democrats uh, just right now. It's happening right now. As a matter of fact, the Senate Democrats have blocked a Republican effort to expand the payroll protection program. By the way, speaking of the payroll protection program, you know, there's only $250 billion set aside for it right now. The Republicans actually have legislation that would take the cap off. Actually, I, I take that back. Mitch McConnell's plan would be $600 billion uh, and then potentially take the cap off altogether if they reach that. If you need to get into the program, the sooner you file your paperwork, the sooner you get into the program. If you've got 500 employees or less, you probably want to go to FirstLibertyGA.com. The reason you go to FirstLibertyGA.com, that's the Frost family. They're over in Noonan. But wherever you are in the United States of America, you can use them. And FirstLibertyGA.com, First Liberty Building and Loan out of Noonan, because they are not a massive corporate bank, they are much more nimble at being able to process paperwork and get you into the system. They're good people. Really, the Frost family, they're dear friends. Uh, they are now sponsoring the program. I was telling people about them uh, last week, and then they stepped up and said, might as well sponsor you. You're telling everybody, sending us business. And I want to keep sending them business uh, for this reason. If you have 500 employees or less, you can get into the program. And in getting into the program, you can... Uh, grab, uh, you can get it to the front of the line and you can go with a bank like First Liberty. There will a building alone, not a bank that can process the paperwork quicker because they're not having to deal with the servers of the big bank bureaucracy and a million people from all over applying through one bank. They're a smaller operation so they can process you faster, get you into the SBA program and get you in the line and the queue for the payroll protection program. So if you need to pay your employees and you're a small business, uh, I think nonprofits, churches can apply. They have made sure that they can apply without strings attached. Uh, you can get into the program and get help from the government. So go to firstlibertyga.com or text DATA to 33777. And when you click on that link, the very top thing is about First Liberty. You can get there, but you you really need to do that if you can. Uh, you really need to do that um, if you if you're willing and able. Now, as far as the payroll protection program goes, I want to play you this clip. Uh, This is from the United States Senate. Uh, This is Ben Cardin, the senator from where? From Maryland, I believe. Listen to this. Grabian, the multimedia Uh, marketplace. Sorry, I'm getting it from Grabian, and I forgot to log in, which means you're going to have... Let me do this again, because I don't want to have all the watermarking on here. Here we go. Objection. To object. Senator from Maryland. Uh, Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, Let me uh, just clarify some of the issues that the majority leader pointed out. I'm afraid that this unanimous consent is basically a political stunt because it will not address the immediate need of small businesses in the legislation that we have passed. And let me clarify that. The majority leader indicated that the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Plan has run out of money. It hasn't. Uh, 30% has been committed. It hasn't been yet released. But there are programs under CARES Act that have run out of money. Now, that's a little bit of a misdirection here because there's $250 billion in the program. And they've received requests for up to $250 billion. But they haven't processed all of those requests yet. So that's why he's saying it hasn't run out of money. They haven't requested, they haven't processed all the requests yet 
to get to the $250 billion, even though they know they already have that many requests in there. Why? The SBA computer system crashed. The Small Business Administration computer systems couldn't handle it. So the Republican plan is to take the caps off or at least get it up to $600 billion so more people can apply. The the SBA can only process 30% of the ones that are there, but they know pending is already up to 250. And this, again, is why I'm telling you, go on as quick as you can. Go to firstlibertyga.com because uh, if you can get in with First Liberty, they can file the paperwork. The the $250 billion cap is already been set, but it is a guarantee at this point Congress is going to get rid of that cap. And so get ahead of the rest of the people if you can. If, if you're able, you may not need to. may not be a big deal. Uh, but this is willful obfuscation by the Democrats to say that uh, only 30% has been in there. The problem is that the SBA computers crashed. But we know what the backlog is. We know what the backlog is. And that's a little bit irresponsible uh, on that side. Now, the other issue here is the continued propaganda by the Chinese on what has happened. The Chinese continue to willfully obstruct our abilities to ascertain what happened and willfully make up the data. They have unlocked Wuhan. This does, see, this doesn't make sense. This is why, uh, l- let me go back into, into what I was talking about in the first hour of the program. I was talking about, you know, there are a lot of people, and I'm sympathetic. I disagree, but I'm sympathetic. There are a lot of people out there right now who say we need to, everybody go back to work right now. The models continue to drop. Uh, things are not as bad as it seemed. We can all go back to work now. And I'm sympathetic. But the reason the models are dropping, and and there are people saying, well, shelter in place was always contemplated. That's not true. Social distancing was always contemplated, but not shelter in place. And the models began to significantly shift when governors, all the governors except for, I think, 10 have issued shelter in place now. It's not a coincidence that after Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Texas, uh, and several of the other groups issued, uh, other states issued shelter in place that suddenly the model started shifting dramatically. It didn't happen until those shelter in place orders went into effect. And maybe instead of thinking the models were always wrong and they always screwed up, maybe you should say, hey, we're doing what we need to do. America, heck yeah. America's awesome. But there's so much willful obfuscation. There's so much data that is wrong, and there's so much of a lack of trust, and we have a hard time believing the Chinese data. There is a report out from ABC News that U.S. intelligence knew that the pandemic was happening in China in November and that everything out of the White House is wrong, and that's not true. The, the, one of the national intelligence groups actually has come out today, overnight they did, this is one of the groups that never releases public statements, and it released a public statement. It's very much like when Bob Mueller had his uh, committee, had his investigators release a statement on one of the BuzzFeed stories that said, nope, this story is absolutely, it was about Michael Cohen going to Prague. There was the story about Michael Cohen going to Prague, and, and BuzzFeed, I think it was BuzzFeed, ran the story that Michael Cohen had gone to Prague, and, or no, it was McClatchy. McClatchy did it, and uh, the, the, Mueller investigators came out and said, as a matter of fact, this is wrong. This did not happen. Uh, We don't know who your sourcing is, but your source is wrong. Well, that's what the Defense Intelligence Group did last night, saying they have no product out there in November saying there was a virus spreading in, in China. 
Now, there are intelligence operatives who suggest that, yes, there was information out there. It never made it into the president's intelligence reports, and they're denying all of it because of sourcing, that perhaps we have sources in China who were trying to protect them by denying our level of knowledge in November. And if so, that makes sense. They didn't put it in the president's intelligence reports, but they were monitoring the situation. But The Lancet, which is a respected global medical journal, says the very first case was not known until uh, December 1st, which means that it had started spreading at some point in November. Perhaps there were other cases sooner than that, but there also continue to be suggestions, more and more credible suggestions, that perhaps this could have been an accidental release from that laboratory in Wuhan. Now, what about that laboratory? Was it man-made? No. Uh, I have talked to enough people at this point who are experts in the field to be convinced this was not a man-made virus. This was not a bioweapon. And every single expert, and I have talked to a lot of them, and every single one of them tells me that there are essentially, essentially fingerprints in these viruses where you can tell if they're man-made because they have to be aligned in certain ways and have certain key components in them that would signify that they were altered or manufactured by a human process. And the virus does not have it. But it is very overwhelmingly likely that the virus was accidentally released, was found and accidentally released. If you will recall, there was that that, that goofball in the White House, one of the reporters for one of the, the, the propaganda networks on the right, uh, that was suggesting that this virus was manufactured in North Carolina. And she was roundly pilloried, as she should have been, because she didn't articulate the question well and clearly didn't understand what was going on. Uh, the CDC was allowing American labs to investigate coronaviruses, and there were a series of lab inst- uh, accidents, one of them being in North Carolina, that caused the prohibition on experimentation of coronaviruses in American laboratories. And this North Carolina lab, apparently independently run, continued for time doing some experiments, uh, but also abandoned it because of uh, the possibility of accidental infection. And the Chinese may very, very well have continued on doing uh, experimentation on coronaviruses leading to accidental infection. In fact, it appears more and more likely that's what happened. Uh, But the idea that the virus was spreading rampantly in November in China, there's just no data out there. And if there was that data, it probably did come from intelligence assets who the government needs to protect. And so, of course, they're going to deny everything. They don't want to get key spies killed in China. But it doesn't actually appear that even that's likely. It just appears that there was no viral spread in China in November. But the media is now running the story. And the only reason, the only reason they're running the story is because they think it'll make the president look bad. Think how much more responsible the media would be if they weren't so willing to be partisan progressive activists to try to bring down this president. I want to call your attention to a brand new sponsor of the program that I just dearly love. Uh, And, you know, it's always neat because so I grew up with Paul Harvey. Uh, My dad was a huge Paul Harvey listener when I was a kid. It was the one time in the house you knew you'd get a spanking if you were loud between noon and 1215. And Paul Harvey gave you the sense that all the people who sponsored his program were the people he used, whether it was the water heater company or whatnot. And I don't know whether that was true or not, but I try to make it true for me as well. And like, for example, uh, Dynamic Money, Chris Burns, he sponsors the program and they, he actually is my financial advisor. Uh, the Frost family, I've never had to use First Liberty, but I know the Frost family. They're, they're friends of mine. 
uh, and I know they're good people. I know the reputation. Well, we actually use in our house Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce, and they are a local company in Macon. I did not know they were a local company when we first uh, started using them because my wife likes mustard-based barbecue sauce, but they are. They're also, it turns out, to be the, the oldest barbecue sauce company in the country, and uh, they are local. And in a time of global pandemic when you can't find I, – I could not find Heinz ketchup the other day at the grocery store. It's the only ketchup worth buying, by the way, all you hunts people. Uh, but you can find Mrs. Griffin's, and I know you can because uh, Roland, the, the head of the company, was telling me they're driving around the state putting it on shelves. And I'm I, – listen, I'm a firm believer in Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. It is delicious. It is perfect uh, for all sorts of things. I really do need to send you guys recipes, and I'll have to send one for them. But if you're in a grocery store, it's a great way to just support a local Georgia business is find yourself some Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. Really good on wings, too. You don't even have to – you know, a lot of times you'll you'll – based on the barbecue sauce at the end while the wings are still on the grill, but you can just get your grill nasty if you do that. Uh, just right when you get them off, um, have some Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce and baste it on, and it'll heat up the barbecue sauce and cool down the chicken at the same time. Uh, perfect for wings and uh, pork. I mean, pork, you name it. Well, I, I don't recall that I've used it with beef, but pork and chicken, and even I, I smoked a turkey the other day and used my Mrs. Griffin's on it. It's good barbecue sauce, and now they're a sponsor of the show. And it's super cool. So I highly recommend it and want you to go out and get yourself some Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce and you'll have good eats at your house. Now, tomorrow, I, I'm I'm telling you this, we're going to do something different. We're going to have a good Friday show. It's not like anything you've heard on the radio before. And you should tell your family and your friends to tune in wherever you're listening to me right now in the state of Georgia or the nation for that matter. You should tune in. Uh, and be with me from 9 to noon tomorrow. You will not be able to go to church tomorrow for Good Friday. And you will not be able to go to church on Sunday. Well, you know, ironically, the governor in his press conference yesterday was asked about it. And he was asked uh, about shutting churches down. And he made very clear he doesn't want to order churches shut down. Some governors in some states have ordered churches shut down. And all the governor has been willing to do is say, we're not shutting you down what we're doing is saying you can meet, but you've got to socially distance. You've got to have six feet away from everybody. You can't be shaking hands. You can't be passing the offering plate around. You got to have hand sanitizer. You got to keep things sanitary. And if you can do that, meet. And people need to wear face masks if they can. And so he's letting you meet. And, and I read a story in, in Kentucky. There's something very similar. It, I'm sorry, it's Tennessee. There's a Lutheran church in Tennessee outside Chattanooga a Missouri Sinai church that's been doing 43 services a week this week, 43 services a week to keep everyone socially distanced. Uh, and they're dividing up the congregation. Y'all come on this day at this time. Y'all come now uh, to be able to meet the needs of people who want to be in church for Holy Week, uh, but also the social distance requirements. And if you want to do that, uh, have 10 services on Sunday or do a live stream on Sunday. Uh, you should do the live stream on Sunday. You should participate in church on Easter Sunday. But tomorrow, many churches have just canceled Good Friday services, uh, and I'm not canceling Good Friday service here. Uh, I will see you or listen. You can listen to me starting at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, and you got three hours to tune in and be with me for Good Friday where we will talk about the greatest event that ever happened in human history.